Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Welcome to another episode of the Boss Podcast. My name's Kirk from Business of Software, and this week we have Tom Adeyula's talk called Why Your Brilliant Tech Fails to Have an Impact. Tom has had a lot of jobs in his time and has failed many times over before founding the very successful Metail. In this talk, you're going to hear his learning journey and how if you want a great business, you need a great workforce that can empathise and represent your consumer base. To have a look at the slides for Tom's talk, you can see the full deck and video at businessofsoftware.eu slash videos and click on the Why Your Brilliant Technology Fails to Have an Impact link. You can hear Tom at Boss 2020 with his new talk, Always Be Learning, discussing the power of the past and how to use it to shape the future. You can find out more and register by going to businessofsoftware.eu. Anyway, that's enough of me. Over to Tom. Happy listening. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Everybody okay? Everybody good? Everybody ready? Um, so, uh, why did I start my music with uh, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? So, um, I was told I had to walk on to some form of music uh, this morning. I chose the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Um, I think growing up as a teenager, I always wanted to be Will. Uh, the cool guy, the inventive guy, the guy who always came up with the crazy ideas. But the reality growing up was that I was actually more uh, Carlton. Um, the tragedy of this actually is that Carlton was a champion dancer who danced in a, uh, an ad as a, as a small kid with Michael Jackson. Um, and he has spent the rest of his years being known for deliberately dancing badly. Um, but actually, if you'd look at this now and you didn't know anything about the show, you'd think, Carlton is the cool guy. And who's this dweeb over here with the cap and the, the terrible outfit? So, you know, I think that's been something that I thought about in terms of my career of, like, actually, it's not about the invention. It's more about the innovation. Um, and uh, I'm quite proud to be this guy. Um, so where have I been since school and dreams of uh, being the Fresh Prince? Um, I've had quite a sort of varied career. Um, I started economics at Cambridge. Uh, I went on to do management consultancy at ZS Associates, um, mainly in the pharma game. I then went and joined the burgeoning internet world, went and then worked in 3G, uh, looked at uh, new models for private jet aviation, managed a band, um, uh, went and worked in film, because I love film so much, and found it intensely dull, uh, working for a blue chip company. Uh, then I worked in uh, a gaming, uh, gambling company before finally starting my own thing. So uh, you're probably looking at this face and wondering how old I am, because that seems like too many things uh, to do uh, between now and then, but I'm, I'm much older than I look. Um, so what have I learned along the way? At Sportal, uh, started in 1998, raised and spent £100 million, 375 people, uh, sponsored everything from Euro 2000 to Juventus, uh, ran websites for key marquee uh, clubs around the world, and went into administration in just three years. Um, 
the glory days of the internet. But some friends of mine went off and did the same thing a few years later and successfully floated their business in 2012 for 500 million. So that model was actually something that would work. It was just at the wrong time. So that was the first great instance of failure that I experienced in my career. Then I went on with the marketing director as Boom went to bust at um, Sportal and joined Hutchinson 3G UK. Um, it was, I think, the biggest startup in corporate history at the time. It went from zero to 1,700 people in a year. Uh, we, we all talk about um, Uber in amazed tones these days, uh, having raised towards $10 billion. Well, Hutchinson 3G raised and, uh, £10 billion before it earned a penny in revenue. And it was all predicated on trying to deliver media services uh, to mobile phones, uh, but they all looked like this, and they were terrible. Um, and you know, as we were building out the business, it became increasingly clear that the notion of building a great media company on 3G wasn't going to be there for launch. And in fact, it took six years before there was a phone which was going to be capable of doing that, and that wasn't even 3G. So the iPhone was a 2G product. And far from being a company that was going to deliver um, a whole bunch of uh, customers who were going to be innovative adopters, you know, the likes of people who buy Apple products, actually where uh, Hudson 3G had to play in the end was with uh, cheap voice uh, for the yeah, effectively chavs is the way they called it. That was their target market. So they pushed the idea that they would have really cheap services and cheap voice technology. So it had to go somewhere different to succeed. And therefore, the original business model was a fail. Marky Jet, so went and looked at um, private jet world. And my focus was on trying to basically bring the prepaid phone card model into private jet aviation. So the ability to uh, fly for 25 hours at a time for a cost of $80,000, rather than having to buy um, uh, fractions of planes. Um, and this was a great concept. Uh, it flew, literally, um, in, in the US um, and went absolutely gangbusters. And Marky Jet still exists today. Um, and in fact, how the concept came about was a bit of fortune, if you like. So there was a company who uh, make all of the uh, music that happens in between basketball games. So dum, 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 da, 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 da. Uh, and uh, they were sort of quite big in the music industry. Um, they uh, uh, ended up arranging for Richard Santulli, who was the CEO of NetJets, um, the biggest uh, private jet business in the world, owned by Warren Buffett for his daughter to sing live on stage with Christina Aguilera. Um, subsequently, he said to the guys, um, uh, Kenny Dichter and Jesse Itzler, if you ever need anything, you know, just ask me. And they said, funny you should mention that. We've, we've had this business idea where we want to take your jets and subdivide them into um, many more fractions than you currently sell and basically charter planes in that way. And he said, yeah, no problem. You made my daughter's dream come true, so yeah, anything you want. So they, they were allowed to build a business off the back of his business, um, and it worked really well in the US. 
we then took that model and we, we started to build the franchise in Europe and it did not work. Um, and it did not work for many different reasons. So fundamentally, uh, in the US, you had a lot of seven hour destination flights. In the e Europe, you could pretty much get everywhere within three hours in terms of major places. You had hub and spoke in the US, you had point to point in Europe, and most importantly, you had a lot of old money in Europe versus new money in the US. And if you talk to anybody about flying private jets in Nice, they would say, I fly EasyJet. So um, that was the big difference. And the European market just wasn't big enough for scale. Um, and in the end, Marquee Jet in Europe got bought by NetJets. We helped push things along, but actually NetJets in Europe never quite hit the scale it needed um, to operate and be a major success. So that was another fail. Um, uh, then in terms of my time in the arts, so managing a band and uh, at Warner Brothers I was working on basically building a new sort of public screening video license. So the idea of for places exactly like this um, to provide new form of licenses where um, you could basically watch new Hollywood movies, etc. Um, for exactly this scenario. In the end we found that the market wasn't really ready, just too small in terms of the band that I managed. Um, they were a bit too niche. Um, the likes of MySpace and other technologies weren't really there yet. Um, so the ability to find your audience just didn't exist. If, that, if the band had been you know, born several years later, it might have had a really good chance of basically finding its audience and over the internet and being able to basically create a wave of momentum. And in fact, one of the, um, the guys that we used to create a remix for the band um, he progressed by himself and he's now in a position where because of technology he's able to live uh, random, random places around the world and distribute his music direct to his fan base and make a living off it. So this was something that wasn't quite there and quite ready then. Uh, and the band was you know, um, seven people too many and uh, the category that they, they um, they, they made was sort of jazz, funk, hip hop. So it was like trying to do too many things, different time signatures, very complex stuff. So not exactly mainstream. So more fail. Um, but I learned a lot um, along the way. And then I think I was in a position where, you know, again, wondering what to do next and ended up joining a company called Inspired. And I think this was a place where I really started to learn a huge amount. Um, it was in the casino gambling space. I'm not a gambler whatsoever. have no predilection to it at all. But in working for this company, I learned a lot about idea creation. So you know, as I mentioned earlier, I never thought I was an inventive guy. Suddenly working here, I realized that ideas are all about customer problems and needs. So we had three potentially massive customers with huge problems that needed solutions. And this was a an area where I was unable to actually really flourish in terms of basically working out how we could try and solve them and came up with quite a lot of products. So by the end of my time there, I was um, head of product development looking after 40,000 machines across the UK and globally. Um, and unfortunately was responsible for product development for a lot of these machines that you, you will have heard about in the news recently as the, the prize limit has been reduced. Um, because they're a blight on society, which they, which they are. Um, so, uh, yeah, so 
what are the things I sort of did learn, right? So that, that first product, if I go back here, this one over here in bingo, um, you know, this is pre-iPad, coming up with a touchscreen terminal. Um, what had happened in the industry, what was about to happen in bingo was the smoking ban. Um, you had a huge proportion of uh, the working classes who went to bingo every week, but 40% of them smoked. Um, and worse than that, 70% of the money made by bingo halls was made in the intervals between the main games. So bingo was facing a catastrophe. So the smoking ban was about to make, put them all out of business. So what we looked at was could we create some form of terminal that would allow customers to take it outside with them into the smoking areas and keep playing. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're just a bit too little too late. So you're talking about an industry in decline having to basically spend a huge amount of money on, on capital expenditure to try and save their industry, and it was all too late. The stuff worked well. Again, pre, um, pre any sort of touchscreen devices that went consumer. So these were pretty expensive devices, but it was too late. So that led to the rise of online bingo, all because of this. And I think in terms of that destruction of uh, the mecca, of a, a place where people could go um, and meet each other and see each other, I think has not been good for society. So a big unintended consequence there. Um, on the casino side, what we developed was a machine which allowed you to play on four roulette wheels simultaneously. Um, and it meant that you could play faster than existing games. And this was all about basically exploiting some of the loopholes in the law. So um, in a casino, you, have, you can only have a fixed number of roulette wheels, uh, and there are a fixed number of spaces around the roulette wheels. So by putting in terminals, you could basically increase the capacity for any given roulette wheel uh, infinitely. So we created this, um, and amazingly, it was taking two times the revenue of any other machine in the casino from the trial phase, and it seemed an absolute no-brainer. Um, but we'd forgotten about some key things. We'd done loads of testing, we'd put the stuff out, uh, but and we'd you know, worked with management and so on, but we never told any of these guys, the dealers, um, because in the end, in introducing this new game, we, we put a touchscreen terminal on their, um, uh, in their environment, and it meant that these guys would have to press a green button to go and a red button to stop for each game, and half of these guys had never used computers before. So we suddenly faced a huge amount of difficulty to the extent that these guys could have killed the whole project. And yeah, we hadn't eaten our own dog food. As a team, we weren't people who really understood casino that well, um, and all of the difficulties that happen in the live environment. So we were faced with having launched something into the field and having to turn it around supremely quickly. Um, so there were three of us who spent you know, three weeks, we were doing 100-hour weeks trying to turn the situation around. Um, and we did somehow, amazingly, um, working really closely with these guys to basically turn that tablet into something that they could use. Uh, 
really understanding what their needs were um, and ultimately putting in a roadmap where we got rid of that tablet completely. So pr prior to full rollout across the estate. And it was a hugely important time where we, we really learned a lot about the casino and importantly, earned the trust of everybody in that environment that we were on their side and would deliver for them. So in terms of this 100 hour weeks, I'd spend every hour in the casino till six in the morning, I'd go home, I'd have one hour kit, shower, then go straight back to work to try and basically fix all the problems that we had in the product. Uh, and only through doing that and really understanding them did we get through it. Um, and once I got past that, I was still getting calls all through the night. So the casino would call me for many months later um, and I'd say, well, why are you calling me? We've got, you know, first, second and third line support. And they'd say, yes, but you can solve the problem. So uh, that was a nightmare to wean them off calling me. And I, I went for a phase where it was a case of, you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night to clear down emails because I'd have 80 emails uh, by the morning if I didn't do so. So that was the unfortunate difficulty of dealing with a business where they work through the night and it was all around basically understanding the people side of things to actually make this a success and it was a big learning for me it wasn't just down to you know the numbers it was like how do how are we going to get these guys to be advocates and that one casino then basically were the guys who went out and sold us to every other casino so we went from zero with a broken product that didn't really work that well but made money to 70% um, UK market penetration in 18 months. How do we do that? Like people, people in the team. So, you know, I was a 20-something at the time. I had another really young, you know, straight out of university guy and uh, a crazy um, Las Vegas ex-submariner um, guy as our core team, basically trying to get this thing moving. Um, the young guy was really empathetic. He worked really well with the people in the casino. Um, my ex Las Vegas guy was somebody who could go in and hack around and fix problems on the fly and really understood how a casino worked. Um, and sort of together as different members of the team, we had different skill sets to make things happen. And that, that was really key and crucial. And actually over time, we needed different types of people. So, that guy who was the guy who would fix everything on the fly, in the end, we had to manage our way out of being, having to rely on him. So he was great for that early stage of basically uh, being the hero, but if you want to build something scalable, we needed to not have heroes and not have to rely on heroes. And that's when you had to build out and get different subset of people who were very much managers and very methodical because um, that was the only way you could basically deliver anything that could scale thereafter. And for us, I think we, at the time, were focused at a growing market. So people needed and were looking to expand their casino operations. They were looking to expand on Bingo's side. So that meant that people were willing to, to accept mistakes with a view to basically pushing towards an exciting future. So positioning yourself in a market that's growing gives you the ability um, to survive on a bit of goodwill and to survive mistakes as you go. And then finally, like this is an important piece which I don't want to under, underplay actually. We were in a position where a lot of the companies that we were working with, so Gala, Gala Group, before they joined to Coral, um, 
and our big owners were a company called Leisurelink, they'd all been spun out of one company, Bass. So Bass is a historic company, goes back over 100 years. Um, they spun out a lot of the big companies that we know today in the uh, pubs and gaming space. And because of that, you had a real sort of uh, connection of the different people at senior levels. And I think if you're doing anything and rolling out any software, you need to find some form of defensibility, be it in terms of commercial or be it in terms of technology. And our commercial lock between the big characters at senior levels was critical to getting through the difficult times that we had. And they're always difficult times. And it's about how you could get through those difficult times and out the other side. So you need as much as you can in terms of goodwill and the capability to drive through that. Um, and timing was critical. So as I mentioned, the market was growing and a lot of that was because of expectations around the Gaming Act of 2005, um, which was then implemented in 2007. So I think if you go back to that era, the UK was thinking about launching super casinos everywhere. Um, and as a consequence, there was a big focus on, on getting ready for that opportunity. And it wasn't just in the UK. Every major country in Europe was thinking about the tax take of gaming. They weren't thinking about the negative sides, but they were thinking about growing it. So there was a lot of opportunity um, to go for. So timing is always, always important. So having sort of launched those products and, and survived, um, I, was, I was finally ready to go it alone. Um, so then it was a question. Uh, take your pick. Um, so then it was a case of like idea. Um, and I think, you know, having gone through all those, those different experiences, for me, it was very much a case of needing to solve a real customer issue. And this took a long time to figure out. It took over a year. Once I was ready to actually do my own thing, it took a year um, to find something that I would go after. And I think sort of key thought process around that was like, it couldn't be something which was about reinventing the wheel. Um, or, and it had to be something that was trying to minimize a change in behavior. So these are the things that I definitely learned. It was like how to be successful required these two things, and you had to be going after a real consumer challenge. So that took a year of ideation. I would meet monthly with friends, we'd bounce things around. Nothing ever seemed quite interesting enough, big enough, um, and certainly having been an economist, for me, big challenges and disruptive change were the things that I was interested in. So where would I get to? And then in terms of trying to think about consumers, I always think about these things. So this is how a consumer thinks, and they think generally the same, and they, and they always have, and they always will. So consumers want better quality, more convenience, lower price. So that's the sort of triangle of things that they're always looking for. So when you're trying to deliver a solution, how can you, how can you basically deliver against these, certainly if you're thinking about consumer? And that's, that's what basically got me going, moving round and round and round. Um, where I randomly ended up, as somebody who's never been in fashion, so you know, I think you look at my career, I've been in fashion, film, gaming, um, uh, music. Um, the thing that sort of hooked me here to going into to 
to fashion was again the, the size of the idea um, and hooking onto a real consumer issue. So for me, it was my girlfriend at the time, now wife, um, complaining about the whole process of shopping uh, for clothes, going into changing rooms, getting all hot and bothered and flustered and just ultimately demoralized by the whole experience. And nothing had got better online. So it's like, what, why hadn't things got better? Um, so that stuck in my mind. Um, I then saw some really interesting technology around that. Um, and I was in my gaming uh, company. I was in the process of trying to create the world's first live blackjack and baccarat game. And I wanted to use cameras to recognize cards as they're being dealt live in a casino. Um, through the process of of investigating that, I was actually sitting in a hotel room in Hong Kong, having been to Macau, and watched Baccarat being played there and seeing how big the opportunity was. So I just Googled uh, leading expert computer vision, and Professor Roberto Cipolla at Cambridge University popped up first, and it had his telephone number. So I just cold called him from my hotel room, and I got through first time. I said, look, I want to build this gaming engine from scratch. How easy would it be? And he said, yeah, no problem at all. Come visit me. So I went to visit him, ended up commissioning a, a, a prototype from one of his ex-PhD students. But one of the key things that he showed me in terms of his research, which stuck in my mind, was um, going from photos of Anthony Gormley statues to 3D accurate representations. So much so that that is actually how Anthony Gormley now makes his statues. So he... He uses Roberto software to take photos of himself and then recreates them in 3D. And then that gives him a huge amount of variation and, and speed and dynamism to create different types of um, uh, um, sculpture um, concepts. And that then stuck in my mind. I had my you know, wife's complaints about fashion. We then went on holiday to Vietnam and she had some stuff tailor-made in Hoi An. I thought, well, Instead of going halfway around the world for you to find some st stuff that would work for you in particular types of garment types, maybe this technology solution could be the answer. So could I use computer vision as a means of being able to generate body shapes uh, and also allow me to digitize garments really fast and really cheaply? So create the MP3, but of the garment world, uh, for then everybody to be able to try on and see how they fit and then effectively solve the online clothing fit problem. So that was a big problem. It was an exciting one, and it felt like the type of thing that I would then commit myself to. So I then went about trying to investigate this and do a lot of research so that I didn't go in blind. And I remembered this company that I nearly joined in 1998. So does anybody remember Boo.com? Right, so basically half the year above me at college ended up going there. Um, found in 1998, they raised more money than we did at Sportal, uh, and they went bust quicker. Um, but they blue-skied every idea in online fashion retail at the time, and they were a really interesting place to go and, and, and look and think. And I, I read the book Boo Who, which was written by the founder Ernst Malmsteen, a great read, um, written with a sort of a bit of lack of self-awareness, so it's, it's, quite, it's, quite, it's, it's, quite, it's quite it's quite honest on that basis. Um, and they had all the big ideas, free returns, 3D garment visualization, virtual assistant. They were just way too early. Like they were you know, building all of this stuff from scratch. 
and they didn't have enough money to do that. Um, lots of really smart people. And in fact, a big coincidence was that the head of business development at Boo.com was my CEO at the gaming company, um, Inspired. So spent a long time looking at what happened since then. Very little, in fact, had progressed. Um, so none of those ideas had followed through, uh, but the whole world had changed. So for me then, it was a case of like, right, okay, B.com had failed then. There were about 20 other companies that had failed in that space. So how, how was I going to avoid failure? Key for me, I felt, was around, again, the people point. I felt that computer vision was crucial. Um, technology was going to be crucial and having the right fashion mix of people in the, in the business as well. We needed to be a good mix of people that could look at the problem from different ways. The market was clearly growing. So online retail was growing at a tremendous rate, the growth of ASOS and Net-A-Porter. So it felt like an exciting time to basically be getting back into this space where people had previously failed. And defensibility. <coughs> so in order to basically build a business that could succeed out of the UK, for me, the key was being able to develop a really strong IP base, a strong base of exceptionally differentiated technology. And why? I think the classic UK tech problem for me looks like this. So if you can't see from the back, the amazing thing is I actually found this picture because I use this analogy and I didn't realize I'd actually find one. This is a papier-mâché Ferrari. Um, so what you find in the US, and increasingly, the more times I go to Silicon Valley, the more this feels true, is that it's a land of hype and marketing. They will sell you something that looks like a Ferrari, looks incredible, but the moment you go and touch it, your hand goes through because it's made of papier-mâché. Right? There's no actual real substance. It's the land of fake it till you make it. Whereas in the UK, we build incredible chassis, the engine's you know, beautiful, and you go and try and sell that to somebody, and they go, well, you know, what is it? You know, where's, where's my seat? You know, how, how am I going to actually... But look at, the, look at the engine. It's sparkling. It's incredible. Nobody's ever made an engine like that before. So that, that's how we sell technology. This is how the US sell technology. The US will sell the vision, and then they will raise all the money they can to actually then build all of the underlying tech and stick it in there before you, you realised it. And they go at such tremendous speed that they end up, more often than not, actually building the insides to this. Whereas for us, we spend so long doing this part, then a US company realizes that we've got exactly what they need to fit in this. <laughs> so, so they come and buy us. Right? So and it, you know, I think this, this is certainly the case in this example for me. You know, I, I knew these guys when they... Um, Jay Bregman when he was e-courier. Um, so they basically proved the concept of e-hailing in terms of taxis. They made you know, good friends with the black cab owners. They went to New York and then they made good friends with the yellow cab owners. Did it your typical softly, softly, slowly, slowly way that we do in the UK. Uh, the big VCs went, hold on a minute. They've proved this concept. This is clearly going to be a thing over the next five to 10 years. Right, so who are the guys who are the most aggressive in the world who are going to basically smash everyone else up? Right, we'll give them all the money. Right, so 
give all the money to these guys to take out all of these guys. So that's what has typically happened in UK tech for me. So going back to my focus about how are we going to succeed, it's always been around we have to basically succeed by delivering disruptive, differentiated technology because there's no way we'll win on cash. US always wins on cash. And I think in this, this example really sort of like highlights it for me. If you look at all of the, the great startups over the last um, 10 years, you know, their total valuation, including likes of Skype who've exited 140 billion, um, <coughs> SAP 121 billion, one company. Right, so we've only ever made one of these. When I started um, Metail, I went to a really depressing conference where the, the talk was, will there ever be another SAP <laughs> in Europe? Right, so at the moment, no, is the answer. Um, you know, SAP was the same size as the next, at that time, 50 combined businesses, including the likes of autonomy. So, I, and when you talk to people about why they got to that position, it was because there wasn't a US equivalent that could, could have bought them. So they got to scale in time to not get bought by a US equivalent and kept going. So that's UK, US. So, and, and a big focus for me, because I wanted to build a global tech business, um, which was a crazy idea. Um, and as I mentioned, timing was important. So the growth of online was happening. Cloud computing was happening. Um, broadband penetration had got to a level. And I had this amazing access to Cambridge University and the growing maturity of computer vision. So that felt exciting. And, and, and it, it was the encouragement I needed to go after this space. But this was like late 2007. So um, the company I was at, um, Inspired Gaming Group, they were about to sell the business at the end of 2007 um, to Icelandic banks. Um, the night before uh, the press conference to announce the deal, um, where you know things were going to be great, that my bosses were going to become my first investors in Metail, I was going to make some options, things were you know fine. Uh, yeah, the the deal founded, and then everything collapsed. And Inspired Gaming Group, over the course of the next year, they were a publicly listed business. Um, their share price went down 99.9%. So my options were well underwater. Um, so, but I thought this was a big enough idea to go after anyway. And actually, I think this scenario is probably what saved the business because I would have spent all that money in a year and I wouldn't have done the things I needed to do to actually make a success of it because I didn't know the industry. So taking longer, spending two and a half years to basically get to proof of concept and... Um, a prototype, um, uh, you know, bootstrapping on very little money, no salary. Um, it meant I spent a lot of time networking in the space, a lot of time talking to people in the space, trying to understand the issues. Um, and without that, I don't think I would have basically built the business in the right way to have lasted 10 years that we have done. Um, <coughs> and I don't think I would have survived all the challenges that we faced. So. We started with this initial premise that 
creating your ability to try something on. That was the focus, the core focus. Um, and originally, our launch partner was going to be these guys, ASOS. Now, uh, between you and I, um, this went south uh, in a quite spectacular way, way for me. Um, I ended up getting called in to um, meet the CEO. Our project sponsor was um, uh, the Econ director, employee number one hired at ASOS. Um, and uh, CEO said, right, we're gonna take a stake in your business. I was like, oh, okay, great. Um, you're gonna get to come and work in our office and use our people. I was like, oh, is, is there any money? No. I was like, okay, I, I've got another offer for a million pounds investment in the business, so thanks, but no thanks. Um, the ASOS CEO didn't take that very well. Um, in fact, there was a lot of expletives in that meeting thereafter. Um, and I ended up leaving the meeting with the e-com director who said to me, I've lost my mojo, I'm gonna take three months off, don't tell my team. Um, <laughs> so I, I think I then naively made quite a big mistake. He ended up taking more time off. I didn't work hard enough to basically network into the other stakeholders um, in the exec team. I just waited for him to come back. And as a consequence, when he came back, he was no longer top dog. Um, it was not as easy to get the project to basically launch, and we missed our launch window with them, so, which could have killed the business, uh, killed the business completely, so they went. Um, so I was sat there in you know, November 2011, what are we gonna do? Money's gonna run out, uh, how are we gonna survive this? Uh, and out of nowhere came Tesco. So uh, a friend of mine's girlfriend overheard a conversation on a, a table next to her while she was working at Tesco from a clothing team wanting to investigate virtual fitting room solutions. Uh, so we got a call. And I went from no launch in November 2011 to launching with Tesco uh, February 2012. So which saved us, uh, completely saved us. Uh, and we went on to win Best Online Innovation at Tesco, uh, as voted for by Phil Clark and the senior team. Uh, the numbers proved that we had dramatic impact. We drove, I think, uh, a quarter of their Facebook likes. Um, but then the whole team got promoted. Uh, and we were left with another team. And they took a year to pay us. This is pre the accounting scandal. So uh, you can understand why. I understand why now. Um, and we found that we just couldn't work with them as an organization. So they went. So we ended up that re ended that relationship. So, you know, two big parties that we should have launched with. We had none now. We also worked with another company, Warehouse in the UK, owned by Icelandic banks. Um, in the course of a year working with them, uh, I think... They just kept shrinking the team. So in, by the end of the year, they had no e-commerce team and they had no CEO. So they went as well. <laughs> so, you know, we had this great technology, but nobody in the UK seemed to... We, we couldn't keep clients in the UK. The market was in such uh, a difficult position of decline. It was like, if, this is a real struggle. Um, we had something that... We, we had numbers which showed that people were engaged but we just could not get a market to work. Um, and we couldn't get direct to the consumers. We were blocked by the retailer. So there was no way for us to get our product out direct to the consumer. 
because we're effectively a B2B2C play. We're enabling technology that we've provided into retailers to, to provide their customers with a way in which to try on their clothes. So this is a massive challenge for us. Um, it's still amazing that we got through it. Um, and we faced a UK market that was increasingly focused on money and saving money because the market was in decline. So you had a market where they were massively over-leveraged with debt, so there's very little equity in the businesses. They had too much real estate. They had legacy systems, so uh, yeah, I think Marks & Spencers took five-plus years to um, change their e-commerce system, cost them over 200 million. Um, and they had legacy talent, so they hadn't changed their talent pool and refocused themselves towards a new online reality. So trying to sell in a forward-looking uh, consumer experience-focused technology into a market that was basically trying to stay alive was impossible. And we were saved again um, by our people. So we had incredibly diverse mix of, pe uh, mix of people, different nationalities, different languages, which meant that when actually the Asia market came calling, we were able to, to service. We had native speakers for a lot of the places that we suddenly started to get interest from. And in Asia, we found uh, a market where they were millennial run, data savvy, tech savvy, focused at fast growing middle class markets, um, willing to basically make investment decisions on consumer experience going forward. So as a technology, we'd built the technology in a way to be global day one. So we were able to suddenly service these markets even though we we're in the UK. So we were going against, completely against normal orthodoxy, which said, go big in your domestic market before expanding out. Whereas actually, the reality is, where is the market first for your technology? Put yourself in the stream that's moving the quickest, and that is your early and late adopter market, and then you work out how to go elsewhere. And I think now, with the internet and uh, the likes of cloud computing, etc., it's been easier than it's ever been to basically try and find your market. And then we'd focused all this time on defensibility. So um, over the last year, we ranked fourth in the UK IP league in terms of our focus on IP. We've got 16 granted patents across UK, uh, Europe, and the US, um, trying to get them in China. But I really very much uh, doubt that we'll ever get past um, the adjudicators there because they throw any type of reason back at you. Um, so I think China's still got a long way to go on the IP front um, before it's a fair market. Um, and we've got 40 plus patents pending. So we built um, a real focus on IP and we built an asset base, which was one which encouraged us to gain more investment. So one of the biggest clothing manufacturers out of Hong Kong um, is our, one of our biggest investors. Um, they've put a lot of money into the business um, and as a consequence we've raised 22.5 million to date um, 10 years in and one of the big reasons for that is that third column there defensibility and IP we built a house that people were interested in um, but we also had to try and think about how to become a no-brainer I think this is a, a one of the sort of quotes in the book by Ben Horowitz, which I sort of go back to time and time again, 
um, because when you work with businesses, you always think, well, the, the numbers um, are, show themselves, but they don't, right? So being two or three times better is not enough. You need to be 10 times better to really drive adoption. And that's the key. So for us as a business, we had to figure out how to d deliver more value. So we extended the product into the ability to drive cheaper imagery and from the data side to help them drive better products. So understanding the size and shape of people and how they connect to clothing with a view to basically making clothing fit for all. So this is something that we basically push now. And as a consequence, we've now started to see our commercial base grow exponentially. And we've been able to come back to the UK. So we're now starting to work with UK customers because we started to do this. We started to work out how to save them money. Um, so that's how we basically think about the industry. So how, how can we be part of our clients' drive to drive efficiencies, create experiences, and generate insights? And the whole industry started to catch up with us. So I think we were way more forward-thinking than the industry was. They've started to catch up. So everybody's terrified of these guys, Amazon, who now are 55% of all product searches. That last year, I think they became the number one clothing retailer from scratch in the US. Four out of the top 10 retailers are up for sale. Becoming dominant in the UK. Everybody needs to have a strategy. Also, in terms of clothing manufacturers, um, ethical cheap labor is gone. Like China are increasing minimum wages and, and forcing changes into how factories operate. So there aren't many places to go. And a lot of the factories went to Vietnam and Thailand because of TPP. And then this man came into power. He said, no TPP, no tariff-free trade. So the big clothing manufacturers are thinking about, well, we've got to think about robots, automation, and data if we're going to have a long-term future, which is why they invested in us. There's also big consumer pressure on the supply chain. See now, buy now. Like, we want stuff faster. We want stuff faster. How are you going to deliver that? You need data and technology. And people have started to realize that the last era has been, putting up, been about putting everything onto the internet, and that's delivered a paralysis of choice. So personalization is the only way out of that. So that's become an exciting position for us to be in. So how do you deliver a Netflix-type model as opposed to a search? based Amazon one. Everybody's on the phone. How do you basically turn that around into an advantage? Um, Mintra in India, who we work with, 85% um, of their sales are on mobile. And how can you know more about your customer? It's incredible how little retailers know about their customers. If you can start to understand their size and shape profile and what they interact with, you can start to deliver the same experience that you deliver in the department store, where you know that person who you see weekly. And for us, it's about trying to bring that data all the way back into the cycle, all parts of the cycle. So, um, get, getting to the end now. Um, I remember in, early in, in the um, journey of Metel, sort of listening to this person speak, Megan Smith. I think she was one of the early hires at Google, and she became the first um, USA CTO under Obama. And one of the things she talked about was that which I've tried to think about again and again, and which is one of the themes I've been talking about today, is that if you want to build products for uh, a global market, you need to have a team which reflects um, your customer base, because there's no way to relate otherwise. So is diversity in terms of your team is not about being altruistic or anything like that, but it's actually about making business sense. So 
you know, the more diverse your team is or the more that your team relates to your customers on the other side, the better your chance of your product. It's always a challenge when you're building software because of the fact that certainly for us, we're building products for women. 70% um, of clothing sales are, um, uh, are women's clothing and they're also responsible for 50% of the rest. Um, I know my wife <laughs> buys most of my clothes. Um, so then with dev teams, you traditionally have your basically 90 to 95% men. So how, 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 do you, how can you work to balance out that and work those issues? And you know, we have a very mixed team on the other side, but it's, it's never quite enough. So we still need to struggle to try and build that diversity. But Google has this problem too. Um, so for me, uh, the duplex that they launched the other day was a, a prime example of why brilliant technology fails. Um, the idea of an assistant calling out for you it, it very much felt like a, a technological solution which was built on being wow and was highly engineering biased, but without many product people actually thinking through what this means. You've decided basically that the pers this person over here is and their time are valueless. Um, you're not telling them that you're a robot calling into them to deliver something. If you're going to build a solution that was actually going to make sense and it was going to be something you'd roll out, you'd rethink this whole user journey. This user journey was built to, for everybody to say this is cool and this is wow. It wasn't built to actually be something you could realistically roll out. And the big ethics backlash to this um, is a consequence of that. But it was cool, right? So, you know, uh-huh, mm, uh-huh. Um, all of those little pieces that um, they rolled into it and how they dealt with the person on the other side looked cool. But I don't think it's something that actually people want. It's uncanny, the uncanny valley. But, you know, they've done it before, um, the Google Glass. Uh, another bit of wow technology, which is a failure. One of my favorites, Gisero. Um, they raised you know, ex excess of $100 million to build a juicing machine. Um, I sat on the board with somebody for a company, and he had one of these. And I couldn't stop berating him for the fact that he bought <laughs> one of these things where, you know, it's easier to use my hand uh, to squeeze the packages than it is to actually use this extremely expensive device. They naturally failed. Sinclair C C5 obviously failed. And even the big guys have failures, right? So Bezos with the Fire Phone. Um, again, the user journey didn't quite make sense. It was like, I'm going to buy a phone to connect me to your store so that you can make more money. Um, it didn't make sense. And uh, jobs with the next as well. So. I think you can always basically fall into the trap of wow technology, especially if you, you make something which looks super exciting and forget the people aspect of it. Does the people make sense? Is there a real consumer problem that you're trying to solve? Is there a defensible position to actually drive it to market? And is the market a growth one? Because uh, if it isn't a growth one, you can't make that many mistakes before you get out of business. So back to Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I'll try and rapidly finish now. Um, the thing that was exciting for me about going back to this was I didn't realize that um, when Will Smith made the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, he was busted broke. Um, he'd been an 18-year-old um, rap star. He made $6 million with his first album. Then he released a second album, which uh, was a huge flop. Um, and not only that, he'd spent all the money from the first album and owed the IRS a, t a huge amount. Um, so they had reclaimed all of his sports cars, they reclaimed everything that he had. 
They didn't know what to do. So his girlfriend said, look, I think you should go and basically spend some time and just um, uh, loiter around the Arsenio Hall show, um, which he did. Um, and then uh, he got to know a guy called um, oh, Benny Medina, um, who said, oh, you know, I think you should come with me. I'm you know, going to this party at Quincy Jones's house. He goes, well, okay. Went to Quincy Jones's house. Um, Quincy thought he was quite cool and said, look, I've got this script I want you to look at. He hadn't even bothered changing the title. It was an old script which has failed. And he said, I, I want you to do an audition now. The NBC guys are here. He goes, what, now? He goes, how about in a week? And he goes, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. We, we, we can arrange the audition in a week. And I guess, I'll tell you what, in, in a week's time, uh, it will get rescheduled um, and it won't happen. He goes, okay, how about three weeks? Okay, you know, yeah, we can try and schedule it for three weeks or you can take 10 minutes now to change the rest of your life. So that's what Will did. They moved everything, all the furniture in the room, and he basically auditioned for the part right there and right then. And uh, the NBC guy said, yeah, that sounds great. And Quincy you know, wouldn't let it go. He was like, right, okay, we're gonna draw up the contracts now. There's your lawyer, write, write the contract now, um, which he did. So the contract was written right there and then at the party. Um, he ended up running the show. He had never been an actor before. The next five years, the IRS took 70% of his uh, uh, salary as he paid them back, and his career went on to stellar heights. So, you know, surround yourself with good people, attack a growing market, the TV, TV at the time for him, he'd, he'd flopped in the, the music space, and make sure you have unique IP or commercial contracts. He had a unique charisma, and he had a unique connection, or had made himself get a unique connection to people who can make stuff happen. Um, and of course, the final thing is just be lucky. Um, so, you know, work hard to increase the chances of something lucky happening for you. I think you can actually make luck happen. You've got to work hard to basically put yourselves in the position for things to happen. Like a current one for us is that, you know, we have a girl working for us as an account director. Uh, in January, we said, oh, we really need you to go to India to make this, this uh, client happen. She said, Okay, fine, she moved two weeks later. She ended up moving into a place called St. John's Wood um, by coincidence. By even further coincidence, the bigger company that owns the company that we're working with, all of their senior execs live there. Um, and by even further coincidence, she used to be top 60 tennis player. Um, she was playing and then those execs spotted her playing, say, oh, could you join our, our um, uh, twice a week game? So she's now become and built relationships with the people that we need to know uh, in that market. So that was something lucky that happened, but only because she was willing to go out there. You know, and I think there are a lot of instances that I've heard from friends, etc., where you've got to basically put yourself in the position for lucky things to happen to you. You've got to go out there. You've got to do the analysis. You've got to work out where your client base are, where they're going to be. Another friend of mine, he. He did the shirt sponsorship for uh, Tottenham um, with Mansion. He'd heard on the grapevine that they were trying to do a deal with United. Um, United said no. He intercepted them at the airport. And at the airport in the lounge did a deal for £45 million. Um, and that was because he did the work. So um, as Quincy Jones said to the lawyer, no paralysis, do analysis. Um, you can make luck happen for you. Um, 
alongside all of those other things. So luck is key. Thank you very much. Well, what was your driver? Why were you doing things? Because obviously it wasn't tech, you did many different things. Was it to make money or to make a difference? Or what, what drove you as a person? Um, for me, my big drive was disruptive change, like trying to solve big problems. I think that was the thing, you know, the, the economist in me. So if you like, Mitel is only finished when my wife is using the technology for her shopping in the UK market. So it's been great that we've been out in Asia, but we're not solved until we deliver that here. Um, and I think money is never really the driver because certainly I'd be wealthier if I was doing a job for the last 10 years rather than this business. Um, I think it is about trying to leave a mark and trying to basically solve a big problem. Um, so for example, if I sold my business to the clothing manufacturer, that would be fail for me because um, they have no means of taking the product and putting it out amongst all consumers. <coughs> so if I sold the business to a business who could then basically extrapolate it, take the technology forward and put it into the hands of consumers all around the globe, that would be success. Thank you. Leonardo. Thanks for the session. Uh, do, do, do you think that relying too much on IP as a point at defensibility is kind of risky? Because eventually patents expire and competitors catch up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think it's more about what's your, what's your overall strategy. So I, I've been in the position where I've um, innovated our way around patents. So absolutely, you do that. But I think it's more about what's your ethos, right? So yeah, patents run out, etc. But it's like, well, are you going to innovate faster than the opposition, yes or no? So you can't raise as much money as the opposition. So it's like, what is your strategy going to be? And how, how can you box yourself into a position where you, you can basically funnel your way forward? Because I think certainly in our space, if we don't file and if we don't be smart, we get blocked because the US equivalent is going to do it, right? So. That, that, that's the hard thing about a patent strategy is it's not just offensive, it's defensive. So, you know, the likes of Amazon, et cetera, they file 30,000 patents a year. So if you don't file any, you're going to have no ability to even operate in the US market. So I think you've got to think slightly that way, but it's more about what differentiates your business. Is it going to be your commercial relationships? Is it going to be your technology or, or what? Like, ha why are you different? And for us, it's like the technology is the means to give us a lead time to make mistakes, to build those commercial relationships. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.